Chantel Brown defeats Nina Turner in the Ohio 11th. What does it mean for supporters of Israel and the moderate wing of the Democratic Party? We'll break down the results and talk national politics with Josh Kroshauer, senior national political columnist for National Journal. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 21 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, happy 21 to us at the Jewish Insider Limited Liability Podcast. Hope everyone at home has a cocktail. If you're listening, if you're not at home and you're operating some sort of heavy machinery, please don't have a cocktail in hand. But I'll tell you, Jared, the champagne was definitely popping for Chantel Brown in Ohio this week as she knocked off a far-left opponent, Nina Turner, to claim the Democratic nomination for Congress in the 11th Congressional District. You know, rarely do we say it and actually mean it that the Jewish community and the pro-Israel community moves the needle in a congressional race. And I think this is one where we can actually point to it and say, it did. Uh, with more on that, we're going to talk to a great friend of Jewish Insider, Josh Krashauer, who is the senior political columnist for National Journal and former editor-in-chief of The Hotline. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Great to be on, guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller. It's great to, to finally be on the, the show. Oh, cha-ching. We could say the same about Against the Grain. Great podcast. Thanks for, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for coming on. Well, no, and I'm also proud to be on episode 21, L'chaim. L'chaim, oh, yes, 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 wonderful, good note, yes. So, no, no wineries have contacted me since our last episode. I don't know what to do here, so we will go to the Scotch distributors next, or whiskey distributors, uh, happy to entertain as well. I know there's a good one in Chicago. If you're listening, let's talk. All right, Josh, so you look at the results from the Ohio 11th this week. What jumps out at you? Any trends, any key takeaways for the rest of the cycle? Well, look, there, there are a lot of things you can draw from, from the results last night. First off, you don't see many like legitimate upsets come from behind type type uh, races in, in, in elections. And this was a true like underdog story where you had Nina Turner, who was leading by 40 plus points in, in, in her own polling, who had millions of dollars coming in from progressive donors across the country. You know, at one point, I think the conventional wisdom was she was pretty much assured of this uh, seat in Congress in, in the Cleveland area. And what you saw in the last couple months is that a lot of Democrats worry about her, her background, worry about her uh, ideology, being too far to the left, being too critical of, of President Biden, really took a risk. And, and whether it was you know Democratic majority for uh, Israel and Mark Melman's group, whether it was Jim Clyburn, the House Minority or House Majority Whip, endorsing her when she was down, endorsing Chantel Brown when she was down in the polls. Whether it was, you know, it pretty much a whole list of establishment Democrats taking sides for a candidate who really was not well known um, beyond her local constituency in Cuyahoga County, and she turned a, a forty-point deficit into a pretty resounding victory last night. Uh, you don't see that very often in, in, in politics. It was a real against the grain uh, strategy, if you will. And uh, it's a big win for, you know, pro-Israel, uh, the pro-Israel community, which uh, was worried about Nina Turner's rhetoric and record and literally organized uh, in, in the last couple months and, and successfully did so and, and elected a, a, a strong ally, a stalwart ally uh, in Congress. So, so, Josh, you mentioned two uh, distinct parties, uh, sort of Jim Clyburn, this traditional establishment side uh, of the Democratic Party, uh, especially uh, 
very prominent national black leader as well, and then also sort of this pro-Israel movement side as well. Assess for us for the moment the Jewish vote, the Jewish influence on the race, if there was one. Um, how do you assess how the Jews in that community came together, the unification of that vote, and whether in fact you know it did make a difference? Cleveland's Jewish community is both large and, and well-organized. And, and, and I might even add, it, it's more unified in, in, in a sense where you had uh, more uh, liberal Jews who are not maybe quite as observant in Beechwood, all the way to the more religious Orthodox communities in Cleveland Heights that were all on the same side, were all pretty early on supportive of, of, of Chantel Brown. So while I think one of the stories we've seen in some of these contests, these primaries between you know, left-wing and more moderate Democratic uh, candidates, uh, there's been division within the Jewish community. On, on this In this race, pretty much everyone was pulling on the same rope. They all were 100% behind Stol uh, Chantel Brown uh, organizationally and institutionally. Uh, so I, I think that's sort of an example of, 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 it shows the power of what happens in a district with a sizable Jewish community, uh, Cleveland-Akron uh, district. And what happens when everyone's kind of uh, on the same page, sending the same message and, and really uh, working together for the same result. If you look at the margin, the final result in the race and the margin that Chantel Brown won by, it's about, about by about 4,000 votes. Uh, you know, any, any you know, just looking at the early numbers and, and the precinct by precinct data, it's fair to conclude that the Jewish vote may have easily made the difference in more than 4,000 vote margin uh, for Chantel Brown than her ultimate winning margin. So it, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Jewish community was responsible, uh, played a big role at the very least in, in electing Chantel Brown to Congress. So, so Josh, we're gonna, we wanna kinda do a deep dive here. I guess the first question that jumps out at me is that if you're Jim Clyburn and you're in leadership and you have to live with whoever wins this primary, uh, why go all in like this? I mean, it seems pretty risky to go in, you know, and back a, a 40 point underdog uh, and get in the middle of a really messy race here. That, that's right, Jared. This was a ballsy move for Jim Clyburn to get involved, to endorse, and then eventually campaign for Chantel Brown when this was far from a sure victory. I mean, if Joe Biden looked like an underdog in South Carolina before South Carolina in the presidential primary, Chantel Brown was an even bigger underdog because no, her name ID, not, not a whole lot of voters knew who she was, it would have, you know, she needed to raise the money. She needed to make sure everyone from Hillary Clinton to the establishment, law, you know, officials in Cuyahoga County were on the same page, drilling down the same message. There were so many things that could have gone wrong in this race. And even with everything going well, you know, she won by five points. It was still a competitive uh, victory. Uh, so Jim Clyburn uh, is a kingmaker, he, but he's not just a kingmaker who gets in a race and endorses the candidate who's ahead. He, in the last year, has now endorsed two underdogs. And, and really, I think his, his insight is very important because he appreciates that despite all this noise on social media that, that tends to favor left-wing candidates, left-wing left -wing activism, he understands that the majority of the Democratic vote in most of these states and districts lies with African-Americans who are much more moderate than, than, than your average Democratic voter and sort of your moder moderate center-left white, white voters in, 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 in that district as well. And that was the winning coalition for Chantel Brown. And, and, and look, you know, despite all the money that Nina Turner was able to raise nationally, she ends up uh, losing in a, in, a, in a pretty pretty decisive defeat. 
Josh, I kind of want you to repeat that last point for Rich because he always beats me up on how far left the Democratic Party is dr- is drifting. But Rich, you had a point you wanted to make, so I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up for a minute. Well, so now that you want me to make a, another point, I'll make a second <laughs> point, uh, and, and that is uh, that clearly they can win if they choose to fight, and and that's an observation that perhaps they don't always take the fight to that far left wing. Uh, they let the far left wing win when they don't have to. So uh, in that respect, it is interesting to me. I, I would want to go a little deeper, though, right? So Nia Turner has this fiery speech after she loses, you know, blames this evil money that, that, that turned the election against her, e- evil money manipulated, maligned the election, quote-unquote. Uh, a lot of different rhetoric uh, that seems to tiptoe around, you know, not just blatantly saying Jewish money is the reason I lost. It doesn't look like money was the reason, though, right? This is a messaging issue, ultimately. And Nina Turner was on the wrong side of a key message about Joe Biden. Um, Break it down for us, sort of, how do you overcome this 40-point deficit to be the victor on Election Day? What what are the mechanics uh, that Chantel Brown has to actually become the the winner in this election? Well, first, let's talk about the money, because I think that is an important dynamic in this race. Nina Turner raised almost twice as much money as Chantel Brown did. She was, you know, she raised millions of dollars, unheard of money, in a, a primary and a, a special election. Um, she also spent a lot of her money early, uh, so there was actually some fascinating tactical decisions being made by both campaigns. Nina Turner's campaign thought that they could throw, I mean, spend all their money, scare off Chantel Brown, scare off the establishment, keep them out of this race and then coast to victory. So it was a high risk, maybe high reward strategy. They put out a poll deliberately trying to, to scare off any 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 of the opposition, um, but it didn't work. DMFI got involved about a month later after that poll came out. And what happened was Turner spent a lot of that early fundraising she, she was able to, to accrue. And then she ran out of, she ran lower, low, unusually low on money given her success on the financial side. And Chantel Brown actually spent more money than her in week after week after week during the home stretch of the campaign. And she also had backing from DMFI. But the fact of the matter is, Chantel Brown spent her campaign money more wisely and more efficiently than Nina Turner did. And she had that critical advantage in the home stretch. All told, the money spent from both Chantel Brown and outside groups and Nina Turner and her outside allies was pretty much the same. There was no huge advantage. Uh, Chantel Brown ra- raised a decent amount of money. She got help from DMFI. Nina Turner raised a lot of money. She got help from some of her outside left-wing allied groups. Uh, so money was not a decisive factor in this race. It was how the money was spent. And Nina Turner decided to spend it all early on. And it turned out to be a very, very uh, bl- big blunder in, in her campaign. She didn't have enough money to, to keep going down the home stretch. Whereas Chantel Brown was sort of like the little engine that could. She started out slow and then built momentum until the final, the final, uh, the final call on, on election night. So, all right. So we talked about the fundraising and we talked about the, the war chess. But talk to us about the tactics. Was there a difference in the ground game, a difference in the air war? Uh, and what do you think made the difference? Well, look, I, I like to say that when if you look at these candidates and take, took their names off the, um, off the ballot and just looked at their resumes... Like, you know, the, how they do those QB1 and QB2 side-to-side uh, tests. Chantel Brown had the better political resume for this district. She, this is Cleveland. The, the district is city of Cleveland, some of the, the su- suburbs around Cleveland, and also the city of Akron. 
Uh, there are a lot of older African-American voters that are not big Bernie Sanders fans, to put it mildly. There are a lot of Jewish voters, as we've talked about here on the show. These are moderate voters, a lot of upper middle class uh, voters in the district. This is more a Chantel Brown. Hillary Clinton won the district three to one, I believe, against Bernie Sanders. Biden won almost 80 percent of the vote against Bernie in the district. So this is a Chantel Brown district. The tactics, I mean, Nina Turner started out with the name ID edge and she started out with the excitement edge because she had that support from the squad from the left wing of the Democratic Party. The bet that the Brown campaign made is that her message, the fact that she was going to be a loyal ally to Joe Biden, the bet that, you know, Nina Turner's comments saying that there's no difference between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that would pay dividends in the end. Um, And it did. I mean, when you look at politics is all about like place and and who, who, who the voters are in any given constituency. And the fact that like one thing that just struck me, guys, is that in the spring during the Israel-Gaza war, Nina Turner was just out of control on Twitter attacking Israel when she's running for office in a district with a significant Jewish constituency that cares a lot about Israel. That is political malpractice, no matter how you cut it. She couldn't keep herself disciplined enough not to get on the keyboard, not to gratuitously you know, call Israel an apartheid state. Uh, in order to, to, to help herself for an election where you have a lot of voters, a lot of Jewish voters, a lot of voters who care about Israel. So, so I want to kind of go deep a little bit on something you said here. When we're looking ahead to future races, right, if you're DMFI, if you're one of these other groups, right, in the past, there's been a lot of questions of which races are you choosing to get involved in? Uh, we think of the Lipinski race. They chose not to get involved. Lipinski lost. Marie Newman is there now with a terrible record on Israel. Um you look forward to what are races in the future in this particular district in this race it seems like you had a proxy war between joe biden and bernie sanders all over again bernie sanders aoc the squad versus joe biden if you will from a message perspective and joe biden won when they decided to to play those cards him now being president whatever it is there's coattails in the democratic party now he won the centrist one can you extrapolate what happened in this district on this night to other districts in the future? And how do you make those decisions? It's a great question, Rich. And that's the 64,000. The, the biggest question after last night is how does this affect the pro-Israel Democratic community's strategy in looking ahead to 2022? Is this a one-off? Is this a race that was sort of a perfect storm where, yes, it took a lot of guts to get involved against Nina Turner and to, to invest so much money early on. But you had Clyburn, you got Hillary Clinton, you, you got the whole like, you know, community that, you know, that, that, that had sympathies with her overall message. And it's a lot different than taking on a, a sitting incumbent, even if they're part of the squad, right? I mean, it, it's a much different political calculus, both back home in, in those districts and against leadership, uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, endorsed Ilhan Omar, for example, last year during her her, her competitive primary. Um, so there are a lot. I, while I think this is encouraging for the pro-Israel Democratic community that they were able to win a very important race, uh, they're still playing defense a lot. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot more emphasis on protecting incumbents that are pro-Israel rather than going after uh, left-wing squad lawmakers who have made anti-Semitic comments. I just think that's the reality within the party, that there's not 
there may be a there may be a political opportunity to go in an open seat race against a very left wing candidate like Nina Turner. But I don't know if Jim Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats in camp Congress would welcome uh, pro-Israel groups, Democratic pro-Israel groups from engaging against an incumbent, even if they've made anti-Semitic comments, even if they have a very left wing anti-Israel posture. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see. We, there's redistricting, so the lines are going to change in the next uh, few months in a lot of these these these, these races. Um, it'll be interesting to see what groups decide to do. But I, I would bet that you, you'll see a lot more effort concentrated on protecting pro-Israel incumbents and also engaging in these open races where, where there's not as much skin in the game. Josh, what do you think that this race uh, says, if anything, about the state of the party, like the rank and file? Does uh, are they where they've always been, but just with a more vocal, maybe more mobilized left wing, or is there an actual leftward uh, anti-Israel drift, as my co-host might might allege from time to time? You know, guys, I think you're both right. There's truth to both of your positions. The Democratic Party, the majority of voters in the Democratic Party, are still sympathetic supportive of Israel. Though the majority of lawmakers, I would argue, uh, maybe even the clear majority of, of lawmakers in the House and Senate on the Democratic side would vote with, with Israel in alliance with Israel on, on key issues. Uh, I don't think that's changed dramatically. Um, what, I, what I think has changed is the energy in the party and, and what you're, you know, the, 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 the opportunity cost of trying to go after uh, the, the more ascendant left wing of the party, which is a minority, but it's a vocal minority. And they're very good at, at leveraging influence on social media and even in the regular media where, you know, just, just this week, Cori Bush, uh, who a member of the squad, who's obviously made some some very uh, incendiary comments about Israel, has gotten adulatory coverage for for her uh, or for her efforts to uh, try to uh, keep keep homeowners, keep, keep people uh, not having to pay uh, rent or whatever. Um, th that, that's the dynamic that a lot of uh, more moderate Democrats are facing. They may have the majority of voters in the party, but the squad has the energy. They have they, they have the activism on their side. And that's a dynamic that anyone has to pay, pay attention to. It's, if you go after the king, you best not miss. And it was a big win for Democrats in, in Ohio last night. But it's a different story if you're talking about um, – you know, going after Rashida Tlaib or going after Ilhan Omar or one of those uh, more, more uh, uh, those left wing anti-Israel lawmakers. And while Nina Turner is smarting from the loss, uh, we hear she may be taking consolation in a lot of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So that's uh, so good, good, good for her. Good for Too them. Soon. Just Too kidding. Soon. Just kidding. Don't have confirmation of that. This is people get their news from us. I don't know if that's true. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> okay, listen, Josh. I do want to change gears a little bit. Stay in Ohio before we zoom out nationally. There was one other primary uh, that happened this week as well on the Republican side. Uh, we look uh, a little bit to Ohio's fifth uh, congressional district. Mike Carey taking the nomination after getting Donald Trump's endorsement. Any trends or signals out of that race you saw? Anything different from the prior specials down in Texas? Yeah, the the biggest takeaway is that Trump's endorsement still matters and will matter in, in a whole lot of primaries to come. I think a lot of uh, anti-Trump Republicans may have gotten some false hope that because in Texas the Trump-endorsed candidate didn't win, that this was somehow a smoke signal that Trump's power over the party has dissipated. 
I mean, the reality is that Texas race was open to Democrats. It was a general election. It was open to Democrats, independents, Republicans, of course. Um, and there were Democrats that voted for that non-Trump candidate, which skewed the results a little bit. Um, what's fascinating about this Ohio 15 race is the guy who won the Trump endorsement was not the most hard right candidate. Of, of, he's, a, he's a coal lobbyist. He's someone who has good relationships with a lot of, uh, of moderate Republicans in, 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 in the state, in, 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 in national politics. The main reason he got Trump's endorsement is because of his relationship with Corey Lewandowski, Trump's you know longtime advisor. There were three or four other front-running candidates who are much more conservative, much more Trumpian, if you will, on some of the culture war issues than Mike Carey. But the endorsement mattered. The endorsement mattered. There were 14 candidates on the ballot, and having that stamp of approval from the former president was pretty significant. And I expect that to be the case. I mean, look, the big question is, can an anti-Trump or someone who's not getting the Trump endorsement, can they get past a Trump candidate in a few races that are really important for Republicans' ability to hold control of the Senate? That's going to be the question going forward. But I, I expect Trump to continue to have a really solid track record with his endorsements. And uh, I, I still think he's the glue that holds the Republican Party together these days. At 15th Congressional District, I think I think I had a brain slip before I said 5th Congressional District, 15th Congressional District, obviously, in Ohio. So, so Josh, I want to key in on something you just said, because uh, it really was striking to me that 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 ideology in this Republican primary actually didn't matter for Trump's endorsement. It it was all about, uh, you know, bowing down before the dear leader. And it's not actually b- behind, you know, about any one particular set of ideologies. What does that say about the Republican Party going forward? Can they just run as the party of Trump without a clear ideology? Uh, the Republican Party is now becoming a cult of person. Well, if it wasn't before, it's becoming a cult of personality uh, in, 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 in the image of Trump. And you can be a moderate Republican if you have Trump's endorsement. And if you if you have good relations with, with, with the former president, that, that's really the most important thing that, that matters. Uh, Trump doesn't care about what, where you stand on abortion, where you stand on uh, trade or education. He cares about whether you support if you are nice to him and whether you are indulgent to this whole, you know, this whole indulgence of him denying the election results in 2020, which is not a good place for the Republican Party to be, in my view, in, in, in the long term. Uh, you know, maybe in the House, you can get away in a bunch of races by having Republicans that Trump doesn't know running in, in individual races. And it, 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 this ends up not being a factor. But in a lot of these high profile Senate races next year, you're going to have candidates that Trump is paying close attention to, and he's going to want to keep him close to him. And they may not be great candidates. They may not be ready for prime time, and they may be forced to take positions that they're uncomfortable taking in order to win important elections. If I'm a Republican, that really scares me, right? Because if you're a Republican who believes Republican things, and I believe those people are good people who can love this country just as much as me, like that really scares me that I have to make it not about a core set of values, but about a cult of personality to one human being. So I'll get off my soapbox now. Clearly, there are issues underlying how people feel about the direction of the country, how people feel about the president of the United States, and and that will ultimately potentially be the difference maker in House elections, Senate elections next year. I want to talk about some of those races coming up. But before we do, what are you seeing right now in the data? There's inflation fears. There's the Delta variant and, and what's having that impact on the economy and on opening up and new measures coming back out. What are the key issues you see driving uh, these elections? 
so the 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 macro environment is favorable to Republicans. Number one, it, it's good to be in the opposition. It, it's good that Mitch McConnell lost that. In, 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 in political terms, it's good that he lost that 50th seat because he doesn't. He's not in control. You can blame the Democrats for everything that's going on, and that's always a good position to be in, politically speaking, uh, when you're the minority party, uh, especially in the first term of a new president uh, in office. So that's good news for Republicans. The economy, I don't think, is nearly as good as the White House seems to, to think it will be in, in, in 2022. Inflation is a very real concern in the polls I'm hearing, not just publicly, but from Democratic uh, surveys, uh, that, that voters are not necessarily saying that they're in love with the $1,400 check they got from, from the White House earlier this year. They're not talking about the child tax credit. They're not talking about even infrastructure or, or some of the spending down the pike. They're worried about the rising price of gas and goods and, and, and what this means in the long term for their for, for their financial future. So, I mean, I think on, the, on those fundamentals, on those economic fundamentals, it's at best a wash for Democrats and, and maybe uh, a strong headwind for Republicans as well. And then you've got the cultural issues, um, which Trump, I mean, certainly likes to foment. We'll see how, how focused he is if he campaigns in, in the midterms. But, you know, crime, I think, is the one issue that's a real uh, red flag for Democrats, uh, namely because they spent so much of the last year indulging these activists who were, you know, saying to fund the police or, you know, criticizing the police. And all of a sudden crime is spiking in major cities. Democrats feel the same uh, problems as Republicans do. This is a bipartisan issue when you look at the polls, even though they may have different solutions to how to deal with it. And they need to, they don't want to hear these activist slogans. Eric Adams was sort of the, the telltale sign of that when he won the New York City uh, mayoral nomination. So the headwinds, I think, are very, very favorable towards Republicans on the fundamentals. Um, but the candidates matter, too. Elections matter. Like camp- campaigns matter. Candidates matter. Um, on the House side, I, I think you know, Rep- McCarthy is right. Kevin McCarthy is right to think he has a very good chance of becoming speaker next year just because of the margin, the narrow margin Pelosi holds, redistricting, uh, reapportionment. And, and just the fact that House races are, you know, it's hard to figure out who's running in every one of these competitive House races in the country. Trump isn't probably paying attention to the House races beyond Liz Cheney and Adam Kins, you know, and the ones where, where they voted for impeachment. So I, I think the House is in pretty good shape for Republicans, though I don't think it's a fait accompli by any stretch. It's the Senate, like I said, where, where it's really getting problematic for Republicans. And they may have the, the, the environment, at the wind at their back in a lot of these swing states. But I, I'm looking at some of these candidates, some of these Trump-endorsed candidates in particular. Uh, Josh Mandel uh, is going to be an interesting one to watch in Ohio. Uh, Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania. Um, Ron Johnson, even, as an incumbent senator. Will he run or will he, will he retire? We'll see. But these are Republicans that have hitched their wagon to Trump and even maybe maybe even taken more extreme measures in, in, in certain areas. And they are not great matches for the, the, the swing states. Don't forget Herschel Walker. If he runs. If he runs. If he runs. <laughs> and, and- and if we do have somebody else who runs in Wisconsin, the DSCC will be combing through the Jewish Insider podcast uh, for every word that uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher has ever uttered. So we look forward to that. Uh, I want to go back for a second. You talked about some of the culture issues. You talked about crime being an issue that could be a wedge, the defund of the police movement and the backlash that that had for some of the Democrats in the brand last cycle they saw down ballot. 
Are we seeing the same thing a little bit on critical race theory as well? This seems to be something that had been going pretty mainstream now is sort of viewed independence as something extreme. You have a lot of parents in these public schools throughout, especially in the suburbs, saying, what are they teaching my kids? I don't want to be a part of this. I, w- I want them to learn math. I want them to learn civics. Um, you know, this is not, I don't believe in this. Is that potentially also something that could come alongside the crime issue as a backlash in some of these suburban districts? I think it's a potential issue, uh, a big issue uh, in, in certain races. It's fascinating how the issue of what's now called critical race theory is almost a Rorschach test in what kind of Republican you are. Like if you're more of a fiscal Republican, a Chamber of Commerce Republican, or a, a sort of a cultural warrior Republican. I think it's a big political. I, I was actually in Columbus. I was in Loudoun County, Virginia. These blue suburban areas that have gone, or sorry, these one-time red suburban areas that have gone blue and really deep blue, uh, over overreach their mandate, it, it's sparking a genuine backlash. And it's not just far-right, you know, activists. These are, these are um, I think it's a larger coalition of, of concerned parents than Democrats and even some Republicans appreciate. Um, that said, whenever you, a lot of Republicans are nervous, and whenever you, you use the word race, if you say race in an ad or in a, it, it, it could backfire in a bad way. And, you know, I think Republicans have to be concerned about talking about the issue in a way that both engages the base, but also can bring in the concerned moderate suburbanites and not not just use Fox News language, but talk about this as a, a real bipartisan. Because if you look at the polls, if you look at the early data and some of these anecdotes in, in, in school board meetings, this is not just a Republican issue, but if it becomes a partisan issue, if it becomes a right wing issue, it could turn off some of the people that they're trying to win over. And because I'm that obnoxious New Yorker who thinks the, the, the world revolves around the five boroughs, you mentioned him a minute ago, uh, the Democratic nominee for mayor, the presumptive next mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, uh, activist, former police officer, who seems as of right now to be threading the needle on, on public safety and is really sort of... Um, pushed back against the pushback, I guess you would say, on defunding the police and has been talking about bringing back uh, certain kind of undercover units and and talking about sort of more quality of life type policing. Do you think uh, his his success or failure in his first year has any impact on on Democrats in the midterms, at least in the Northeast? I think he is a, a really breath of fresh air for the Democratic Party. And it was fascinating that Joe Biden was almost taking lessons from Eric Adams' campaign. Like he, he was even invited Eric Adams like within days of his nomination of him winning the race, coming to the White House and front and center. Um, you know, I think I talked to a lot of folks in the Biden White House, even going back to the Biden campaign. And there are a lot of folks in the administration that want to say what Eric Adams did, but they're uncomfortable with saying it publicly. Um, they, they, and, and, and Eric Adams gives them a, a potential future mayor who understands these issues intuitively, who has a track record, Jared, as you note, as a former cop, as someone who advocated for reform as a, as a cop uh, at the NYPD. But as someone, he can say things that Joe Biden and a lot of other Democrats are uncomfortable saying. They just don't want to alienate their base. And Adams is sort of bulletproof. He, 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 people aren't, I mean, he won the election pretty, pretty convincingly. And he speaks to what a lot of Democrats talk about and think privately, but maybe they're afraid to, to, you know, engender any backlash from the left wing base. 
Yeah, and, and, and it's worth noting that Eric Adams, before he was a police officer, was actually the victim of police misconduct as a kid. That's what led him to the life of being a police officer and then an activist. So, yeah. All right. Worth noting. It's an, ama- it's an amazing story. I mean, really, it, the guy is like made for New York, made for TV. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of Eric Adams when he becomes mayor. So, Josh, we, we just came out of another special election this week. Uh, we, we have some trends we've seen, we've discussed. What should we be looking to next uh, this year? Are you looking at some of the gubernatorials, Virginia governor's race? Are you looking at anything in California on the recall? What, what will be some additional telltale signs before we get to 2022? Rich, the two, two big races I'm, I'm looking at are the governor's races, uh, one, one in Virginia and then the recall, which is coming up next month. I mean, it's hard to believe that we're going to have – a uh, huge California recall election that's going to be decided uh, mid-September. Uh, you know, I think Governor Newsom is going to survive. It's hard to imagine, uh, given the, the the state of the Republican opposition, that um, you know Newsom would would lose to. Keep in mind, by the way, the, the the question on the recall isn't do you support Gavin Newsom or the Republican. It's simply do you do you support recalling Gavin Newsom? And the numbers have been uncomfortably close lately for for Governor Newsom. Um, I was talking to a Democratic strategist that had it had the the recall losing by about eight points, but that's way too close for comfort in a, in a very blue state like California. So I think that you know whether he wins the recall or loses the recall, the margin is going to matter. If California looks close in September, uh, clearly the economic mood, the mood uh, post pandemic, uh, is not going to be what Biden was hoping for, and that may carry legs into the 2022 midterm election. And, and Virginia is, you know, Virginia is always an, an important test of um, where, where the mood of the country is. It always comes the year after the presidential election. You know, on paper, Republicans have a good opportunity to to to, to win back the governorship. They are running against Terry McAuliffe, uh, who's trying to make a comeback uh, as governor, and they have a businessman named Glenn Youngkin. Um, you know, I think Youngkin is, is is an interesting guy. He's a wealthy. Uh, former uh, CEO of the, the Carlisle Group. He, the problem is, and I wrote about this today in my column, he just doesn't have a r- real message. Like the issues that we're talking about here on this podcast, he hasn't really talked about yet on, on the campaign trail very extensively. And, you know, I think he has an opportunity to lean into crime, lean into inflation, lean into some of these worries that swing voters have in Virginia and across the country. But he hasn't yet shown that he's really uh, built a, a real... Uh, clear message, a real clear argument as to why Virginia voters should elect him. So there's still time to come. That's not till November, the election, but um, that's a big bellwether in, in my mind as well. You know, the recall election in California, if they had scheduled it like a week later, we could have had a conversation about voting booths, but a different kind of booth, the Sukkot, because it would be Sukkot. And like, can you vote in your booth? Because it's a voting booth then. So anyways, all right. Rich, that's, that's, that's a... That's a bad Hebrew school teacher joke, Rich. I'm sorry. You tried, but but you're swinging a miss. Listen, send comments to comments. No, go ahead. All right. Uh, All right. No comment on that. All right, Josh. We're going to go to the lightning round, which is uh, where we want to try and get a little bit of a flavor of who you are as a person and how you relate to the Jewish Insider podcast. Um, What is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And Yiddish profanity is okay, even though we try and keep the English not so profane on this. Boy, that's a great question. You know, I, I'm going to have to go a little uh, salty with uh, schmuck, schmuck. I think that's one of my uh, favorite words. I get 
I, I, I've always enjoyed calling people who I don't like schmucks. So why not? All right. We, we, you're, you're not the first. I, I will tell you that. We've had that on previous episodes. Uh, one day we will actually get this correctly on the website where you will see who we interviewed and their favorite Yiddish words. So we can immediately do a control F and say, I'll tell you exactly who said that word that starts with an S that I can't bring myself to say. Eric Cantor was the first to use machatunum, and I was very impressed by that because there is no word in English for, for machatunum. So, all right, Rich. J- Josh, favorite Jewish food? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Uh, I would say potato blintzes with sour cream because that is our pre-pandemic. Every At the end of every breakfast after Yom Kippur, we, we throw a little shindig at our place and potato blintzes and sour cream on the menu. Oh. So I love that. I've- I feel like the Balintz is like not uh, as in vogue as it should be. It's sort of out there with the Kanish where like we should be all be eating more Balintzes and Kanishes. I, I actually, listen, the fact that Jewels around the country and uh, Albertsons, all, all these different chains, Safeways, carry in the freezer section the Balintzes tells me that there is this like huge you know, community of blintz eaters out there, Jewish and non-Jewish. Josh, you're not alone. They're carrying it for a reason in every single grocery store. You can get blintzes, pierogies, they call them in Pittsburgh. But the pirate—I I was just at a Pirates game. They they sell blintzes in Pittsburgh. So it's not as good as seeing Manischewitz wine in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which I can tell you firsthand is in every bar in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So that, as they say, is a subject for another podcast. Um, so. Josh, last book that you've read that you would highly recommend? Oh, boy. Uh, so the book I'm reading, I'm almost finished with it right now, is uh, Josh Rogan's uh, book about China. And uh, the name is Chaos Under Heaven. The, the name was uh, escaping me. But it, it is a really good look at Trump's relationship with China, the schizophrenic relationship in his administration with with China. And if, you, if you're concerned about like national security and the threat that uh, China poses in the long term, it is an absolute must read. Okay, I love it. And finally, what is your favorite election you've ever covered? Oh boy, these are these are tough questions. Um, I, you know, I, I got to say, covering Al Franken, Norm Coleman in uh, 2008, uh, I, was, I was a young reporter at uh, Politico at the time, and before there was Trump, before there was even Sarah Palin. If you wrote Al Franken's name in a story or a blog at the time, that was your ticket to start. You, you, people read it, read it. People wanted to hear what Al Franken was doing. He could have been eating a pastrami sandwich, and that was um, <laughs> that was enough to drive traffic to uh, to the site. So that kind of put me on the. I mean, I remember covering that race sort of put me on the map because uh, at the time I was uh, uh, both reporting on congressional races, but I also ran this blog, you know, which used to be a thing. And every, everyone wanted to read about little nuggets about Al Franken and, and, and Norm Coleman in, in that race. Uh, both of them still, still, uh, you know, still, still uh, playing key roles in, in, in politics these days. But um, yeah, and then the, the, the one story I, I remember is uh, we got a little tip that and I was working on with a couple of my colleagues that Al Franken, even though he was running for the Senate, um, was moonlighting on Saturday Night Live as a Senate candidate. And I, 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 I'll never forget, like, because it's Saturday Night Live. Like, you don't know if this is if, if, if the sketch that we were reporting that he was working on was actually going to come out and everything was going to be accurate in our story. And I remember working on this piece that Franken was sort of couldn't help getting involved in politics, even uh, couldn't help getting involved in Saturday Night Live, even as a politician. 
And then I was waiting to watch the, the cold open to see if what we had reported ended up being the, the, the first sketch on the show and did. And it was a, it was a story that, uh, that got a lot of attention at the time. Excellent. Josh Crosshour. Thank you for joining the podcast. We look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks guys. Wow, Rich, always great to have Josh on on the line uh, talking to us. You know, I was struck by, our listeners probably don't know this, but when we were rehearsing and developing the concept for Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast, Josh actually did our first show that maybe one day when we're big time uh, podcasters can be released as a special limited edition uh, outtake. Uh, but it was great to have Josh on and to really geek out on some of these races and, and, and talk about what they mean. Josh is our little Hanukkah miracle. That that's when we did it. I think it was like a like a special Hanukkah episode. It, it didn't come out, but we we started January sixth, as everybody recalls. Uh, and uh, you know, it was great to have Josh on. Encyclopedic knowledge of U.S. politics. Uh, so great, great to have his insight to go real deep into one congressional district or zoom out to the rest of America. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah.